You know, in the summer of 1909, Sigmund Freud was gathered together with some of his fellow cigar smokers in a cigar smoking club that he belonged to. And he was planning his first and only trip to the U.S. And while they were in the midst of enjoying their cigars together and probably sipping on some bourbon or something like that, Freud said, I'm going to America to catch sight of a wild porcupine and to give some lectures. Well, as far as his buddies knew, Freud didn't have a, a particular fondness for porcupines. So it was kind of an odd thought that he, that he posited there. And the thought that he would travel over 3,000 miles by ship because remember, we, they didn't have all these modern conveyances we have today that would get you there a lot quicker. But to do all of that in order to see a porcupine. But as he continued his thought, Freud said to them, whenever you have some large objective in mind, it's always good to identify a secondary, less demanding goal on which to focus your attentions in order to detract from the anxiety associated with the search for the true grail. So he knew he was coming here to deliver lectures, and that was a pretty heavy thought on his mind. So to lighten that thought in his own mind, is he said, I'm going to go look at porcupine. It's interesting to say that, but it does kind of raise the question, why a porcupine? He could have chosen any other animal that's native to the United States, but he chose a porcupine. Well, before Freud's time, back in 1851, Arthur Schopenhauer, who was a German philosopher, de delivered a parable that addressed a dilemma. A dilemma surrounding the actions of porcupines in cold weather. His parable later became known as the porcupine dilemma. I don't know if any of you have heard of that before, but you're going to hear something about it today. Now, Schopenhauer's porcupine dilemma was about a family of porcupines. And they had crowded together to keep warm on cold winter days to keep from freezing to death. But you can imagine what happened when they did that. They began to prick each other with their quills. So that would cause them to move apart. But then they'd get cold again, which would cause them to move together again to get warm. And it became this vicious cycle of getting closer, moving away, getting closer, trying to find that optimum distance in order to stay warm but not prick each other with their, their quills. The porcupines figured out on their own, as we tend to do sometimes, when something is not quite right, they realized that they'd be better off if they stayed at a moderate distance close enough to get the heat, body heat from each other, but not so close that they had a problem. Schopenhauer concluded that the need of people and society in general brings human porcupines closer together. But he found that due to human nature, the separation also becomes just as necessary as the closeness. 
that separation becomes the only way of getting along with each other sometimes. But then there's still that closeness to be able to experience the warmth of our fellow human porcupines. But not so close that we get pricked by their quills. I mean, how many of you have ever known a person that rubbed you the wrong way? And so you tend not to associate with them as much, but you still value the relationship enough that you do want to get closer, but not so close that you're offended by their quirks, if you will. Schopenhauer's parable about the porcupines was actually quoted by Freud later on in 1921, where he referred to the sediment of feelings of aversion and hostility within any lasting human relationship. Freud also wrote about several questions when it ca- that came to the whole subject of intimacy, such as how much intimacy is too much and what degree of intimacy is needed for us to survive as a species. Again, there's some people we just can't stay around very much for very long, but we do have a value for what they give to us in our relationship, so we still have that continuing with us. So maybe Freud wanted to see an American porcupine because of the challenge of creating close and personal relationships and how the porcupine dilemma provides answers to us as to how we as human beings can learn from each other. It says in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, I've quoted this many times, and it, as well as the Gospels and uh, many of the epistles. Love your neighbor as yourself. And I've said before, unless you love yourself, you can't possibly love your neighbor. So that's step one. This verse was referred to and described by Rabbi Akiva as a fundamental principle of Judaism. And I don't think you have to be Jewish to understand it and to appreciate it and to practice it. See, even with the importance of our mitzvot between us and God, he says mitzvot like Shabbat, prayer and kashrut, those actually become secondary in importance to the mitzvot that govern our relationship with others. He concluded by saying the truth is we need each other. And not just those of us in this room. We need each other as human beings. So there's these two cows. They're grazing in the pasture. And while they're there, they see this milk truck drive past. On the side of the truck were these words. Pasteurized, homogenized, standardized, vitamin A added. One cow sighed and said to the other one, makes you feel sort of inadequate, doesn't it? The milk wasn't good enough without the vitamin A being added. Well, we can also feel an inadequacy if we don't have quality relationships. See, people are our vitamin A, that supplement that makes our otherwise ordinary lives better. That doesn't mean there won't be times when getting along with others isn't a challenge. 
And I think everybody in here can appreciate that thought that it's challenging sometimes in some of our relationships to get along with the other person. I read about this, this one guy who said a frog has an advantage in life. He can eat anything that bugs him. Well, and there, there's even a shirt with the inscription on it that says, Of all my relatives, I like me the best. And sometimes that's what it's about. You know, I can get along with me, I just can't get along with anyone else. Or, I can get along with me, but I don't understand why nobody else can get along with me. There's, I'm going to present three ways, and there's more that you could come up with on your own if you'd like, of how to get along better with other people. And maybe in that process, maybe we can, we'll let the Torah give us a solution to the porcupine dilemma. First one is, consider the, this parasha that we're in. There's a list of non-kosher birds that's listed there. And we see an interesting one in Leviticus 11.19 called the chasida, which is usually translated as stork. Well, the name of the chasida is related to the word chesed, or kindness. Now, what can we learn from the chasida that'll teach us about chesed? Well, in the Talmud, it's written that this bird is known for its show of chesed, its, its show of kindness, because it shares its food with its friends. But with that being said, if the stork possesses such a favorable trait, why is it listed as non-kosher? Why is the chasida a non-kosher bird? Because even though the chasida has that trait of showing kindness, of chesed, it only shares fish with other storks. It doesn't share with any other species of bird. So that type of chesed is not compatible with the teachings of Torah. You're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, as long as my neighbor is another stork, I'm okay with that. But, no, I can't, I can't share my food with another species of bird. There's a term that I just discovered in my studies, homophily. I don't know if anybody has ever heard of that term before. It means love of same. And it's a sociological theory that people tend to form connections with others who are similar to them in characteristics, such as socioeconomic status, values, beliefs, or even attitudes. And over 100 studies, homophily has been observed in one form or another. Similarity produces similar connections. Storks are charitable to storks. And we all know the phrase, birds of a feather flock together. So we need to be careful to avoid that tendency as children of God. Not 
sticking just to those that are like us. But because we're supposed to be ambassadors for the Lord in this, this world that we live in, we should be showing that same trait to all people we come into contact with. It brings up an old question. If you met a perfect stranger on the street, would he know you were a believer just by your action and your words? See, we have something that's special. We have something that the world needs. They, many people just don't know it yet. See, regardless of how different we may be, we should still extend that chesed, that, lan- that kindness, that love for your neighbor to those that may be a little different. Second thing, and as strange as this next statement is going to seem, people are different. But different can be good. Can you imagine us all being cloned? All have the same thoughts? All speak the same words? I mean, where would the free will come from if we are all cookie cutters of one another? So we all have our own uniquenesses. We have our own values. And we are all special. Now that may sound like a simple phrase. We are special. Yes, we're special to God. But guess what? We are special to one another as well. We all have something to contribute to our neighbors, our community, our nation, and even the world. We all have a place, and we, at the same time, live and exist in a world of diversity. Thank God for diversity. I don't want to be like everybody else. I don't want everybody else to be like me. I will say this, in all that I just said, Anybody that's spent any time with me knows that you get what you see. I'm the same here. I'm the same at home. I'm the same anywhere I go. You will not see me acting differently. You will not see me acting like I used to before I came to faith. Also, there's a difference. There's men and there's women. There's a book that's entitled, and you've all heard of it, Men Are From Mars and Women Are From Venus. I've never read it, but I picked up some snippets out of it that the author takes these broad generalizations about the differences in gender. And some of those gender differences, especially when it came to communication, are quite revealing. There's another book called You just don't understand, subtitled, Men and Women in Conversation. It shows that women tend to suggest where men tend to command. Women use the word let's more frequently than men. I did seek out one former medical professional to verify this thought. But take nurses for an example. A female nurse might come to a patient and say, let's take our medicine. While a male nurse might say, it's time for you to take your medicine. See the difference? Women and men do not speak alike. 
even within the same profession. Reuben Gurr, who was a brain researcher at the University of Pennsylvania, conducted a study that demonstrated that women were able to read emotion and facial expressions better than men, which may help women be more empathetic. I'll say this. I won't get into the details of it, but years ago, I, I was uh, in a conversation with a, a mutual friend of Batya's and I's, and I didn't think much of the, what, how the conversation was going, and she was not hearing the entire conversation, but she picked up on my facial expression and was able to read into what was going on, and she spoke to me later, took me a while to realize she was absolutely right, but she read that in my expressions just by me having that conversation with my friend. There was a Glamour magazine survey that showed that 60% of conversations between women are usually on emotional or personal topics, compared to only 20% of the similar conversations between two men. People are different in other ways, aside from gender. One example is the order of birth. Could the order of your birth make that much of a difference? These are a few statistics that were reported about three or four years ago. Of the original 23 astronauts in the space program, 21 were firstborn children. All of the original Mercury astronauts were firstborn. More than 50% of all U.S. presidents have been firstborn children. And lastly, more than 60% of people listed in the who's who in America are firstborn children. The Talmud has something to say about the differences too. It says like everyone's face is different, so is our way of thinking. In order to solve the porcupine dilemma, we need to take into account the uniquenesses of every person that we have interact with. I mean, I've heard the comment, oh, he's just so weird. I, 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 can't, I can't talk to him. Or, oh, I, I don't like the way he looks. I can't approach him. That's the whole point of overcoming this porcupine dilemma is you kind of have to go beyond your comfort zone to make those connections. The third point, and this involves a story that may or may not be entirely true, but it makes the point. There was a circus in England. It featured an elephant named Bozo. Circus goers loved Bozo, especially the kids, of course, because he was so gentle. He was a very passive animal. Unfortunately, being the wild animal that Bozo was, he didn't remain as pleasant. As time went by, he became mean and violent, so much so that the circus owner had decided he was going to euthanize Bozo. On the day he had scheduled the procedure, a man came out of the crowd and asked if he could have a chance to prove that Bozo was not a threat to anyone. The man entered Bozo's cage and began speaking to him in a foreign language. Instantly, Bozo's mood changed. He became gentle again, 
The man then told the owner of the circus that Bozo was an Indian elephant. His previous trainers had spoken to him in Hindustani. So as soon as Bozo heard a language that was familiar to him, he calmed down. The owner was amazed by the transformation, and he not only agreed to spare Bozo's life, but he hired a Hindustani trainer to take over the training of Bozo. What's the point? The point is, if we're going to understand the porcupine dilemma, we need to speak the language. Now, I'm not referring to the spoken languages like in Bozo's case that we have here, English and Hebrew and Spanish and French and German and so on. And even though learning a second language could be helpful in communicating with one another, it's not what I'm talking about. See, people could be much, will be much more at ease and even impressed with someone who wants to meet them on common ground. Not lording over them and not being condescending in their approach to them. But one-on-one, straight, straight across the aisle. See, there's more than one way to communicate with people other than spoken language. There was a story of a Jewish man named Andrew. Again, this one I'm not sure of. The facts are in there, but whether or not Andrew was a real person, it doesn't matter because the point is still there. He was planning this whirlwind trip around the world. He was going to go to Sydney, Hong Kong, Kuala Lumpur, Beijing, Vietnam, and Melbourne. He devised this trip all around, a trip he was going to make to a conference in Fangshan, China on that Saturday. Now, Andrew wasn't a particularly observant Jew. But his travel agent was an Israeli Orthodox Jew that he was friendly with. The agent proposed a business class itinerary, but slightly altering the Kuala Lumpur-Beijing flight from Saturday to Friday, for obvious reasons. Andrew just kept insisting no, I, need, I want to stay an extra day in Kuala Lumpur. So that means he would have to have a flight on Saturday. Travel agent said he would, wouldn't be able to book the travel for him over a Shabbat. But Andrew would be free to book that portion of the, the flight, the travel, on his own. So Andrew agreed and he started going through the planning, trying to book the flight for, by himself. But then after thinking about it for a while, he reconsidered. Andrew wrote an email to the travel agent. He said, Greetings from LAX. I will board my Delta flight in 55 minutes. I reconsidered, and you're right. Perhaps I should be more observant. I'll manage without a day in Kuala Lumpur. So I'll have an extra night in Beijing. Do you have any recommendations for a good Friday night dinner in Beijing? The travel agent recommended the Chabad of Beijing for a nice kosher meal and booked him on the original itinerary, flying from Kuala Lumpur to Beijing on Friday instead of Saturday. That's not the end of Andrew's story. Two days later, Andrew wrote again his words. Holy God, I'm sure you heard what happened to MH370. If anybody doesn't know what that means, that was Malaysia Airlines Flight 370. I cannot stop thinking about this. This is a true miracle for the books. 
You are a true lifesaver. I cannot think anymore. We'll talk later this week. Don't know how to thank you enough. Now, please, change my return. I am not stepping on a Malaysia Airlines flight again in my life. The travel agent responded by saying, I'm so happy for you. No, I'm not the lifesaver. God and Shabbat are your lifesavers. You owe them something. Now, the fact that Andrew's life was saved by making the decision not to fly on Shabbat can be a chilling thought. And it's dramatic in this story. But what was also important in the story is how non-judgmental and how gentle the travel agent was when he tried to encourage Andrew to change his itinerary. Never did he say, you shouldn't fly on Shabbat. Or, why would you ask me to do something against Jewish law? Travel agent simply told Andrew, you're free to book that part of your trip on your own. But it was Andrew that came to the conclusion, I've reconsidered and you're right. I should be more observant. I think Proverbs 3.17 says it best. You're going to recite these words a little while later. Her ways are pleasant ways, and all its paths are peace. Sometimes it might take time to see the value of another person. But time is what we've been given to be able to do that. We should invest our time in one another, in others in our community. The last story, really short. Man was applying for the job of private secretary to Sir Winston Churchill. Before introducing him, his aunt told the man, Remember, you will see all of Winston's faults in the first five hours but it'll take you a lifetime to discover all his virtues. Anybody that's been in a relationship with a person at all in their lives, and I think we probably can all find ourselves there, we probably saw everyone's downside within the first five hours or even less. But we're still learning about their value. We're still learning the virtues of that person which we would have never, if we didn't continue to invest our time in them, we would have never seen because we gave up after that first point of contact. Even though it wasn't written to describe the love life between two porcupines, I think we can all get the idea. Sometimes, as painful as it may sound, it hurts to be in love. That's the porcupine dilemma. There was a song from 1964 called It Hurts to Be in Love. Parts of the lyrics say this, It hurts to be in love when the only one you love turns out to be someone who's not in love with you. We've all met that person who didn't particularly like us, or we may not have particularly liked them. But over the years, the friendship built, and we were able to come to common ground. And now the two of us have a common idea in mind for our relationship, which is a good thing. Because when you can find that common ground, you can build from there. It could take time. 
sometimes years, to bring ourselves to an understanding of the fact that everyone deserves to receive chesed, to receive the kindness to become familiar with other people's differences. And then being able and willing to learn to speak the language of acceptance, of tolerance, and love. Love your neighbor as yourself. With the end result being to become closer to one another. And as a result of that closeness, maybe we will discover the solution to the porcupine dilemma and apply that solution to the human porcupine dilemma. Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we thank you and we bless you because you have made us different. And because of that difference, sometimes we need time to understand one another. Open up our understanding as we speak to others. Even as we join together tomorrow for the March of Remembrance, I pray that you would bring people to us as you did last year and allow some of us to relate to them what our purpose is and then maybe draw a little closer to them as they draw closer to us and we draw them closer to you. Let us understand how to overcome the differences how to excel in, in our relationships with other human beings. And coming to the point, we become more and more like you each and every day. That we will indeed become better ambassadors of you. Every time we open our mouths, give us the words to speak. Every time we have an idea of somewhere to go or something to do or somewhere to, someone to talk to, Give us guidance through your Ruach before we even get there, before we even step out of our doors. That's what you want us to say. How you want us to say it. That we can draw others closer to you. And that your kingdom would be grown and would prosper because you use us to your glory. According to your will, in Yeshua's name.